Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, marking the 20th anniversary of Owen Hart's sudden and tragic death, why it was such a loss for pro wrestling and for Calgary. Also, a new study finds almost a third of Canada's economy is protected from foreign competition and how consumers ultimately foot the bill. Some new numbers on the economics of electric vehicles. How much can consumers save by making the switch? Plus, the debate around the so-called Idaho stop and the argument for allowing cyclists to treat stop signs like yield signs. We in the World Wrestling Federation are saddened by the tragic accident that occurred here tonight. Send our condolences and sympathy to Owen Hart's family. It was 20 years ago today, May 23rd, 1999. The pro wrestling lost one of its stars and Calgary lost one of its sons. Owen Hart died in the ring after a stunt gone horribly wrong at a pay-per-view event in Kansas City, Missouri. So a lot of reflections today on what happened and the impact that Owen Hart had, obviously here in Calgary, right around the world. Fascinating audio documentary on Owen Hart's last day. What led up to the tragedy? What happened afterward? You can download it, listen to it at postwrestling.com. It's also up on YouTube. Joining us to talk more about the documentary, to talk about the life and impact of Owen Hart and what happened on that day 20 years ago where we lost him. John Pollock joins us. He's a reporter and podcaster with postwrestling.com. John, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, thanks a lot for having me on the show. It's uh, it's an unfortunate uh, anniversary, but it's uh, you know obviously a story that people uh, still had a, a lot of questions yeah. about, and was was an enormous story at the time uh, twenty years ago this week. Well, it was, and and I, I mean I think it speaks to to what a big star Owen was, but but also just how beloved he was, how respected in the industry he was, right? And you know he he certainly meant a lot to a lot of people. Tremendously. This is someone that, I mean, in professional wrestling, the number of uh, figures that have come and gone in this industry that Owen Hart is one that you can count on maybe two hands, that you just don't hear any negativity about this individual. You don't hear stories, whether on or off the record, about uh, this guy in any uh, damaging kind of light. This was a real beloved figure amongst his colleagues, amongst fans, and just seemed to be an overall super positive presence in the locker room that was able to break up a lot of the monotony that these individuals go through on a, on a weekly basis, being on the road and, and trying to be able to alleviate that with someone like an Owen Hart that had that reputation of being, being a, being a prankster and lightening the mood in yeah. what can be a, a very stressful industry. It was interesting because you go back to 1999. So this was a real high point for the WWF as it was at the time. You're coming off the wrestling wars between WWF and WCW. WWF was really starting to dominate. The industry was was really going strong at the time. And for Owen, now this came about, you know, it was just over a year since his brother had defected over to WCW. And here he was uh, still in the WWF. So what, what was his position within the company at, at the time and, and amid this, this era? Well, I think it was a conflicted one. Owen Hart was someone that when he got into the industry, he took to it very quickly and, you know, wrestled around the world. But largely, it, it's he found his audience in the World Wrestling Federation. Once his brother left, I, I mean, he was the one that the company uh, did not want to let out of his contract. He ended up actually getting a raise at that time at the end of 1997. And, of course, the WWF, as as much as they were... Uh, at the time, you know, number two, when it came to television audience with world championship wrestling, one uh, battleground country that the WWF was still doing superior in was Canada. And here they are losing Bret Hart. They did not want to lose Owen Hart on top of that. And this guy was, he was a tremendous in-ring performer, but this was at a time when the company was certainly uh, getting away with a much more adult-themed product, and it was content that Owen Hart was not comfortable with, and here was a guy that was a tremendous wrestler, but not really displayed as such by the time we're looking at 1999, and that gets him into this comedy role as the Blue Blazer. 
Yeah. And and I still remember and and you know I was in my my sort of early to mid 20s at the time and then that was kind of that the audience that this this product was being targeted at and I still remember and growing up watching Stampede Wrestling and knowing the Hart family that Owen was a big star but this just seemed like what are they doing with him? You know if you you're, you're going to keep him in the WWE not not let him leave not let him move on. He deserves better than this. So going into to what happened 20 years ago so he's he's this mass character uh, called the Blue Blazer, right? Yeah, so this is a character that he'd actually played 10 years prior in the World Wrestling Federation when they introduced him under a mask, uh, which was interesting at the time that that is how you introduce him. Like, here he has the famous last name. He's the younger brother of Brett, who is already an established performer in the WWF, but the introduction at that time was to put this you know, tremendous wrestler under a mask and much, have a much more cartoonish persona and 10 years later, they decided that this is going to be, you know, we were going strictly for, for comedy with, with Owen Hart. And Owen had made it pretty clear that he did not want to do any any kind of storylines that were going to allude to him uh, having an affair with uh, any of the females on the roster and any storylines largely that were going to embarrass his family that were the ones that would have to be out in public where professional wrestling is taken at the time very seriously in Calgary. And it's the weird world of wrestling where it's not a credit roll that runs at the end of the program. And these are largely individuals under their actual names playing heightened versions of themselves on television. So their portrayal is, is important in terms of their reputation. So going into that night, and this had been done before, and there, there was a whole kind of storyline around this. So it, it was one thing to have this kind of weird, goofy gimmick, but to then incorporate something that obviously had an inherent danger, this idea of him being lowered into the ring, essentially from you know the roof, the ceiling of, of these arenas. Now, how did that come about? So they did the stunt, actually, a couple months prior in November of 1998, and it was largely just a, a play off of a very popular character at the time in Sting with WCW. That, that was his iconic entrance, was descending from all of these different arenas in spectacular fashion. And the WWF's idea was, here we're going to put our, our cartoon character, the Blue Blazer, who is being portrayed at this time in 98-99 as this relic from the 80s that is out of step with what the current product is. So he was the butt of the joke. And here he is... Uh, a, descending from the the ceiling and he gets caught he doesn't quite make it down to the to the uh to the floor and it's it's just played up for laughs so that was the first time they did it in november 98 and then they were going to revisit it in may and they were they were looking at doing it on an episode of raw several weeks prior that ultimately got postponed and then they were going to try it again in kansas city but that was essentially it was just done as uh a, a punchline. It was to be done in mocking fashion. It wasn't designed to be this uh, this superhero entrance. It was supposed to be largely just a, a joke. And at the time, they were actually going to have uh, a, a mini wrestler by the name of Max Mini attached to him. And it was only during the afternoon that they made the audible to not include this wrestler attached to Owen, which sadly, I mean, that, that saved the man's life. It's, right. it's tragic to look back on, but this audible ultimately save someone's life but that speaks to everything that was going on that day and you know and, and you tell it really well in the in the documentary because i mean this this shouldn't have happened this shouldn't have gone ahead that there, there seemed to be some you know certainly enough red flags that that somebody should have made the call that we, we shouldn't be doing this well it, it certainly well once you look into the process that they they went through that day and you know, Martha Hart has a really excellent book as, you know, she largely has, has put together like the, the case that they had here that there were several rehearsals during the day. Uh, what we know is that Owen did go through with at least one rehearsal during the day. But the biggest difference from the stunt that they did in 1998 to 1999 was the device that Owen was actually hooked up to. In 1998, it was a locking carabiner that they had used with one uh team of stunt coordinators. In 1999, there had been uh, a push from the WWF to use uh, what's called a, a quick-release snap shackle. And the reasoning for this was they felt that it looked... That there was too much time once uh, the performer was to repel and then unhook himself on the live broadcast that they wanted it to be quicker. So with this quick-release, it, it does as it's intended to do. And 
you know, the, the original uh, stuntmen that were involved, they, they did not want to use a quick-release snap shackle, and they ended up not being used for this stunt in Kansas City. It was, it was another rigger who had uh, claimed at the time that he had worked in WCW with Sting stunts, and, you know, it, it's come out since that he, he kind of overstated his, his role in those stunts, but that was the biggest difference between the 1998 stunt and then the, the one in May of 1999. So as you say, it was a live broadcast. It was a live pay-per-view, in fact. And so Owen fell. What, how, how high was the fall? It was 78 feet that he fell. Oh. Uh, and so this is happening before a live audience in the arena, live audience watching on pay-per-view. And, and something I didn't actually know, and I learned from the documentary, and this is really disturbing, in fact. I, I, I assumed that, that Owen had died immediately, but he, he didn't. No, he was, you know, he was still alive by the time they reached the hospital. And it was, uh, I believe it was about 9, 12 p.m. Eastern time that he died. So it was uh, roughly 33, 34 minutes later that he died, that he was being worked on. And, I mean, they were, uh, you know, in getting him to the hospital as quickly as they could. But, yeah, it was, it, he did not die instantly. And you're right, like the audience is unaware of the status of Owen Hart as he's being wheeled out. Mm-hmm. And you have the the reactions that range from the, the immediate reaction of, is this some horrible idea? That, uh, is this a storyline? Is this some sick angle? And I think by several minutes in, people are realizing this is a, a real tragedy. But never is the live crowd informed uh, that Owen Hart has died. That's an arena that leaves the arena that night unaware that they have they've witnessed a fatality in that arena. The WDF was criticized for this and still is the way they handled this and in particular the decision to keep the show going. Yeah, and it's you know it's it's a mentality in professional wrestling of the show must always go on. That is one that to me it was and it's brought up in the documentary by, by Jeff Merrick like how this is not just simply ruled a crime scene and that power to continue the show is removed from the WWF's hands uh, it is certainly a, a question to, to ponder. You can actually go back and watch this event on the WWE streaming service on the WWE network. And while all the uh, footage of Owen is removed, you can watch the later matches on this card and see Owen Hart's blood still on the canvas. I mean, it's, it, it's something that it's, unbelievable that this went down as it did that night and the fact that this show continued uh to me is something that it's really hard to defend but it's also one that i feel that decision should have been pulled from the wws to be able to make on their own like that to me the authorities should have been contacted and this this is a crime scene and everyone goes home this is a this is a this is an event that we could not possibly have foreseen and everyone out like this is a crime scene like that is to me was should have been an immediate call yeah well your documentary talks about what happened that day and then obviously gets in, into the fallout where you know the the hart family is is coping with this tragedy owen as you say was very much a family man certainly very close with his wife martha and and understandably so i mean she wanted justice she wanted someone to pay for what happened to her husband because it, it shouldn't have happened but things got really messy afterward didn't they it, it was a really nasty fight. I mean, the Hart family is, uh, you know, a, a very, you know, it's a very famous family here in Canada because of professional wrestling. And in Canada, I think professional wrestling, it's been uh, a staple of, you know, of Calgary. And it's, I, I think it's, it's viewed in a, in a much different light than uh, in the U.S. Like this was a very prominent family. And this was a very public battle where you had on, on one side, Martha Hart, that was, going after the World Wrestling Federation for what she believed had been their wrongdoing and was going to bring to light what issues here led to her husband's death. Now, this is a family that many of them, they've earned their living through professional wrestling. And by uh, by burning that bridge with the World Wrestling Federation was not going to serve their best interests. So you had a family that was all united in the sense that they were all grieving with Owen Hart, but their idea of how to go about things next was certainly conflicted and it got very nasty with uh, back and forth between certain family members that were trying to get jobs with the WWF with uh, legal documents on Martha Hart's end being sent 
to the World Wrestling Federation's legal representatives. Like, this was as nasty as it could get. And because of the spotlight of this story, it all played out in public. It did. What's your sense of, of how this changed the industry? And, and certainly, you know, something like this happening at a live event, losing someone of, of Owen Hart's stature, that, that's bound to have a huge impact. But uh, did, is it your sense that it, that it changed the business in any way? Sadly, I don't think it did have that impact. I mean, there's still a, a level of stunt work that goes on um, within professional wrestling, within the WWE, that sometimes you watch, and it's how are some of these individuals who are not trained stuntmen that are being asked to perform uh, stunts that, that would take uh, years of practice and certainly on, on a controlled movie set would be something that would be with the utmost care. I mean, when we see a wrestler that's jumping off the top of, of, of a cage, um, it's it's largely just met with, you know, either awe or or just laughter at the outlandish stunts that are performed. And sometimes I think that there's audience members that kind of forget that these are human beings. And these are, I mean, these are athletes, but these are not professional trained stuntmen. And, I mean, it just the specific of uh, repelling from the ceiling, it was done in WCW a year later. I mean, they did not stop doing that particular stunt. That's not to say it, can be, it, it can't be done in a, in a safe way, but, I mean, this was kind of just viewed as a tragedy, and I can't say that the, the, the bar was lowered at all after this in terms of uh, these men and women that are asked at times to do things that are above their, their level of experience and expertise level to be doing as professional wrestlers. Yeah, that's kind of the nature of the beast when it comes to the industry, isn't it? Even someone, you know, who'd been around as long as Owen Hart was, as well-known as Owen Hart was, if you're not going to do it, somebody else is. Uh, if, if you get hurt doing something, well, that's that's probably bad for you because someone else is going to take your, your spot on the roster. I mean, it can be a very cruel and unforgiving industry. And that's, I think, that is ultimately the concern of these performers who are not part of any... Uh, of any association, of any union, and it's whether realistic fear or not, it is that concern that is always going to be, if I say no, what what am I saying no to in the future? What is not going to be offered to me? What spot am I potentially giving up if I'm suddenly uh, branded as not being a team player and not be and, and being a problem in the workplace if I'm not going to accept my assignment and do it to the best of my ability. And I think that that is certainly uh, insecurity that many performers have, is that you you get your instructions and you, and you don't question it. And on this day, I mean, there was enough evidence that Owen Hart was not comfortable doing this stunt, but went ahead and did it anyway. And sadly, it was a, a ultimate tragic cost for him. Such a loss, such a tragic story. Uh, the audio documentary is called Owen Hart's Final Day. Uh, people can listen, download at postwrestling.com. It's also up on YouTube. John, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks a lot for the time. I really appreciate it. There you go. That's uh, John Pollock with postwrestling.com. Uh, the story of what happened 20 years ago today and the loss of Owen Hart. And certainly here in Calgary. I mean, you know, the Hart family such an institution, Owen being the baby of what was a very, very big family. Uh, Stu and Helen Hunt were both still alive at the time when this happened, which, you know, in a way compounds the tragedy that they had to, to bury their youngest son. It, it was quite an event, that funeral, in fact. I mean, the Hart family were all there. Premier Klein was there. And, and kind of a who's who of the wrestling business were all there to say goodbye to Owen Hart. Somebody who was truly beloved by his peers, beloved in the industry, certainly beloved here in Calgary. Such a tragic loss. You know, for as much as there seems to be a growing consensus, at least a political consensus in Canada, that free trade, open markets are a positive, we still do have a lot of protectionism in our economy for protecting certain sectors from foreign competition. In fact, a new study from the Fraser Institute uh, puts the figure at about 30%. About 30% of Canada's economy is restricted or foreign competition is prevented altogether which means there's less competition, which means then the Canadians pay more. So what are we paying more for and why? Well, you can read more at FraserInstitute.org. But joining us on the line is Vincent Geloso, uh, senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. Vincent, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Walled from competition uh, is is the name of this study. And, you know, it's interesting that, that there's still so much of this, as I say, given that, you know, we just secured a new NAFTA deal and, you know, we like to boast of, of what an open market Canada is. The reality is a little different. Oh, yes. Uh, there's always a, a sea of difference between political rhetoric and actual facts. If we look at international surveys of how restrictive the Canadian economy is to foreign investment or just to domestic investment by firms that are from that are trying to pop up in new sectors Canada is very much an outlier it is very restrictive it limits competition to a high degree and it's strange because everybody in the public sphere seems to make the conflation that if there's more competition, consumers will gain. Uh, And yet governments have erected many, many barriers uh, to competition, which means that they're uh, increasing costs for consumers. Right. And it's funny because, as you say, in in other areas where there is competition, we, you know, we we celebrate that, that there's competition, it's good for consumers. But then when it comes to these other sectors, the rhetoric seems a little different that, you know, we're we're protecting these Canadian companies, we're protecting these Canadian jobs, as they say it, it becomes a lot more protectionist. So why do these barriers exist? Well, let's give a few examples of, of barriers so that people can see better the answer to your question. So, for example, in in, uh, airline services, foreign companies are not allowed to provide service between Canadian cities. That means that Air France cannot take people in Toronto and then bring them to Montreal, unload a few of them, pick up more individuals, and then go to Paris, right? They have to fly directly from Toronto to uh, Paris. This limits competition on the Canadian market to only Canadian providers, which means a very small number of companies. Absent this competition, absent the threat of entry, which is very important, uh, Canadian firms that are providing airline services don't feel the need need to discipline themselves in controlling costs and trying to improve their services. Why? Because Canadians don't have as many options uh to say well you know i'm not satisfied by the service and this guy is new in the business so i'm going to go see him not having this option canadians are uh poorly served because there are no incentives for incumbent firms to try and improve their services right so what do you make of the argument then that well if we allow you know united airlines to come in and fly calgary to toronto westjet and air canada are going to suffer and and canadians uh, are going to to lose out and american companies are are just going to, to capitalize on that well, you know, I, I, I fail to see why we should care about the origin of a business. What we should care about is the welfare of consumers, right? Richer Canadians mean that they can spend more money in other businesses, which include other Canadian businesses. If I make Canadians pay more for airline services, it means that they don't have money to spend on Canadian restaurants, mm-hmm. on Canadian telecom services, or on whatever goods they want. And we're using here an example from air transport, but there's even more egregious ones. For example, uh, provinces like Quebec, where I stem from, uh, actually give outright monopolies to private firms on routes like the one between Montreal and Quebec City. There's only one company that's allowed to provide services on that route. There is no legally allowed competition. So they're giving monopolies out of a legal right to some companies. And it's really egregious, largely because those who use busing services, and this also applies to Ontario, by the way, or uh, until recently to Alberta. Alberta's recently moved away from this. But uh, those who use their services are those at the bottom of the income ladder, those who are the very poorest, not the richest who use bus services, poor individuals. So they're basically... They're hurting consumers who are already uh, hurting to a high degree. Uh, it's completely unacceptable as a, as, a, as a type of policy to restrict competition like that. Yeah. You alluded to uh, telecommunications, and we heard recently, from, in fact, from the Competition Bureau, and, and they've got a lot of evidence showing that a lack of competition means that Canadians are paying more for telecom services. What kind of barriers exist that, that keep other players out of the market here? Well, you know, I, I like the telecoms example because uh, telecoms has been in recent history a case where people thought it was an, a, a monopoly and that there would never be competition. And yet new, te- new, new technologies from uh, disruptors to the market, people who are like inventing Skype. Uh, we're threatening incumbent firms by innovation, which is an important form of ca- competition of creating new products that make the existing product obsolete. But in the case of telecoms, the biggest barriers to these innovators were not 
the firms themselves, it was uh, uh, legal apparatus that were limiting uh, the extent of new firms to emerge. In the case of telecom, the most egregious one is uh, for Canada, uh, firms that are not owned by Canadians uh, cannot join the market unless they have a certain number of, uh, of shareholders who are also Canadians, which means that there is a limited scope for British, Australian, Japanese, uh, French firms to join the Canadian market because they don't have Canadian shareholders. So we're limiting the amount of services that are uh, that can be provided to Canadians by saying, if you're not Canadian, you cannot provide services to Canadians. And thus, Canadians are poorly served, and they face few, and by virtue of less competition, they pay higher prices than they otherwise would have. Yeah. So you got these these restrictions that exist. They vary from sector to sector. I mean, th- there may be other factors that come into play, but how do you go about quantifying? I mean, you come up with a number that represents about a third of the economy uh, suffers from these restrictions. So how, do you, how do you reach that number? So you just uh, take the ones that avoid double counting them. So you take the three biggest ones are restrictions on foreign investment, the monopolies that governments operate themselves, such as liquor in provinces like uh, Quebec, Ontario, and the Atlantic provinces, and the ones that actually give outright monopolies, such as busing services, to a private firm. Line all these up, with, and you end up with roughly a quarter of the economy. Add in uh, issues like occupational licensing, where we restrict entry, for example, to uh, workers in the construction services, or uh, restrict entry for, uh, although I have no hair and I'm a bald person, uh, some provinces restrict entry into the uh, hairdressing business. Really? <laughs> uh, and they restrict it very heavily. Once you add up these, you actually go as high as a third of uh, all of Canada's uh, economic output is to some extent shielded uh, from competition. That's a very, very big deal. That's a large share of our daily lives where uh, firms are not pressured to increase the quality of their services while reducing the cost and thus the prices. And it's interesting, too, because it's not really an excuse for us to say, well, everybody else does it, because not everybody else does it. Canada's a bit of an outlier, as you say. Yep. So there are countries, uh, and some of the, the countries that actually uh, are lightly regulating uh, in that aspect that allow a lot of entry into certain businesses are not the ones we would think of. For example, Sweden, Denmark, uh, which are social democratic countries, uh, actually have very open borders policy. They allow a lot of foreign investment to come in. They allow a lot of competition for goods and services, which down the line, end up uh, benefiting consumers in these countries and promoting economic growth and improvements in living standards. Uh, Canada, in that regard, is very much an outlier. It is very restrictive. It is very uh, proactive in limiting and creating legal barriers to competition. And undoing this is a challenge, I mean, in part because you've got overlapping provincial and federal jurisdiction, but also because, you know, these vested interests that have enjoyed this protection aren't going to give it up easily. Oh, yeah, I fully understand why they wouldn't want to give up. Uh, the, the biggest, there's an old saying in economics, which is the biggest profit of a monopoly is a quiet life. You don't have to worry about competitive pressure. You don't need to worry about the threat of entry from not only within your sector, but from a guy you never heard of who invents a new product that makes your own product entirely obsolete with, with barriers to competition, you can live a quiet life. It doesn't mean that consumers are, hel- are help, but business owners are help a lot by this. It makes their lives much easier because it removes any form of incentive to, uh, to innovate by removing all pressures. Well, the study is called Walled from Competition, Measuring Protected Industries in Canada. It is up at FraserInstitute.org. Vincent, thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Take care. Vincent Geloso, Senior Fellow of the Fraser Institute, FraserInstitute.org. So some interesting numbers out from the School of Public Policy of the University of Calgary today on electric vehicles. Is there any demand in Canada for electric vehicles? Can the government do things to try to encourage or shape that demand? And are people better off? I mean, gas prices are certainly up at the moment, some places more than others. I mean, you look in BC, the lower mainland, it's over $1.70 a liter they're paying for gasoline. Uh, here we're paying, I don't know, I saw $1.13 the other day, but I saw it over $1.20 somewhere else. Uh, so it's up there. 
Now, the price of gasoline can go up and down, but is there money to be saved by buying a non-gasoline vehicle, by buying an electric vehicle, even without any kind of government rebate or encouragement? A car that uses more gas than another car, there's some economics that come into play. So how should people be looking at it? What do the numbers tell us? Well, joining us to talk a bit more about this research, very pleased to talk to its uh, author, Blake Schaefer, is a research fellow at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Blake, good to have you with us. You're welcome to the program. Well, let me press the right button there. Blake, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. We spoke just recently, in fact, uh, on some research you had done about, you know, the gas guzzlers that, that, that Canadians drive and how we compare to other countries. So what, what kind of demand exists right now for electric vehicles? So in Canada on the whole, is still a really small share of um, new car sales. So I think last year, latest data, it was about 2% of all new vehicles in Canada were electric vehicles. Um, if you just look at the car segment, so take trucks out of the denominator, it's a bit higher. It's around 6%. Um, but that masks some really big differences across the provinces. And My piece kind of focuses on BC because, as I'm sure we'll get to, much different scenario in terms of where the gas price is right now. Yeah. In, in BC last year, or the last quarter of last year, uh, 15% of all new cars um, just in the car class were electric vehicles. So that's quite substantial. That's a very different type of number we're talking about than that 2% Canada-wide number. And I expect, as I put forth in this piece, with, you know, adding on this big subsidy that uh, both the federal and the provincial one in B.C., we're only going to see that climb quite substantially in B.C. By the way, I mean, you know, from the environmental perspective, I mean, it, it seems simple enough uh, when, when you look at it at a glance that uh, an electric vehicle obviously does not burn fossil fuels, and, and therefore there's some environmental advantage. But in terms of, you know, the manufacture of these vehicles and the technology needed for electric vehicles, and, you know, depending on how electricity is, is generated in any particular jurisdiction, how much of a, an environmental advantage do these vehicles represent? Absolutely. It's, it's a great point. Again, it differs greatly across the, um, the provinces or across the regions, depending on uh, how clean the power is uh, that you use to fuel your car. So, in BC, clearly, that's uh, going to be an advantage. It's uh, 98% zero GHG uh, power in that province versus getting a, a, um, a vehicle here in Alberta, where last year, I think roughly 60% of, of the power was generated by coal. But more importantly, at the margin, so the last unit uh, required to, to keep the lights on in Alberta, it was closer to 80% of the time that happened to be coal power. So you're getting a much bigger environmental benefit of switching to an EV in uh, British Columbia than you'd be getting here in uh, Alberta. And yeah, there's the, there's the other element that I think you're touching on, which is in the manufacturing process, uh, manufacturing the batteries can be GHG-intensive. Uh, there's been some recent work uh, looking at that, and, and so that plays a role. And again, that comes down to where those things are made as well. Um, batteries manufactured in China, uh, where there is still a big contingent of, of coal power, have a lot more embodied GHGs than, say, the Gigafactory in Nevada, where it's mostly solar power. Uh, so all of these coming to play, but, but on that, certainly even in Alberta, a switch to an EV does save GHGs. Um, uh, in total. Okay. Uh, and in terms of the economics, then, I mean, I, I guess the idea of, of putting a price on carbon is meant to encourage people to make these kinds of choices. And, and I guess rebates are another way of, of doing that. Maybe it's kind of the carrot and, and the stick approach. Is, is one more effective than the other? Yeah, I mean, it, two, two answers to that. So in terms of effectiveness of putting people into EVs, uh, it's hard to argue the subsidies won't be more effective. In terms of cost effectiveness, it's a different story. So in terms of what the cost per ton of GHG saved, these EV subsidies are, are far costlier than carbon taxes, which would be the, mo- the most efficient way to do it. There's some, there's actually really interesting work just came out um, a few weeks ago. I don't know if we touched on this last time we talked. Looking at how people make decisions when they buy a car in terms of how they weight fuel savings that are going to happen over time versus the upfront payment that's happening right there. And this study found that People compared one dollar, were willing to trade off one dollar of discounted fuel savings, discounted at a four percent rate, kind of roughly what you pay for financing. Mm-hmm. They were only willing to pay an extra twenty-five cents for that one dollar savings on the car. Meaning we're we're heavily, heavily myopic in our decisions. We 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 strongly discount the future. 
Um, there's some reasons for that. You know, we might not trust the miles per gallon ratings of a car. There's uncertainty about how long we're going to have it, whether we'll be, even be alive to reap the benefits. All of these things come into play, but that suggests that we are, we heavily discount um, uh, sort of forward views on fuel savings versus what can you get for me today? Yeah, yeah. The sticker price it's it's immediate. It's you know you can yeah. easily okay. This is what this vehicle costs. That's the impact on my bank account. It's yeah. It's it's much more in your face. Yeah, and it's certain you know what it yeah. is. You don't have there's no models telling you how much you're going to save or anything like that. So so there's reasons for that. So that you know that's one argument why there's there's things like these subsidies that can have. Um, benefits over something like a carbon tax, which, you know, as economists, we, we tend to favor. There's these things, we, we, we call them actually um, behavioral internalities. So these sort of decisions we make that are, are uh, confound economists. So why would someone compare 25 cents to a dollar? But there's, there's reasons for it. So some policies can help overcome that. And we see this in terms of energy efficiency. So decisions you might make on your house for insulation or light bulbs, things like this. There's, there's savings to be had if you make improvements, but for one reason or another, we're not making these economically beneficial decisions. Well, it is interesting because BC is a good example where electricity is very cheap. And as you say, I mean, very environmentally friendly. Gas prices are, are kind of through the roof. Yeah. Uh, and in a way, then maybe that's the ideal outcome. You often have this this dichotomy in politics where you kind of get the, the, <laughs> the result you want, but then it causes other problems. So now the BC government is not going to go and investigate gas prices or find ways of making gasoline cheaper. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. So... To- I understand why people in, in BC, commuters, especially those in the suburbs who maybe don't have many options, are, are angry and frustrated at the $1.70 per litre. That's certainly understandable. At the same time, though, it's almost the perfect storm there uh, for EV market share increases. So you've got this really high gas price. You've got a government that's made uh, electrification a core part of its climate strategy, and they're offering you a lot of money to go make that switch. So in BC right now, you get the $5,000 federal rebate, you get a $5,000 BC rebate, and if you've got an old clunker, they'll give you $6,000 to, to, to trade that in. So $16,000 to move into an EV. I, I did some math in this one, the very simple back-of-the-envelope stuff on fuel savings versus the extra cost. Um, and it's, a, it's basically a no-brainer to switch to an EV in British Columbia if you're target market is is a car so if if you don't need a truck for certain habits or or your driving habits keep you within say a 400 kilometer range most of the time which is typical ev range now um the math just says go ev at this point it's 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 not a green thing it's not sort of a early adopter or tech fetish thing it's just economics it's just cheaper uh, to own an EV at this point uh, in British Columbia with those rebates. Well, yeah, it's a pretty stark difference. You look at what it costs to drive 100 kilometers. Uh, it's about from two to four dollars to drive yeah. 100 kilometers in an electric vehicle. It's twelve dollars for a, a Honda Civic or eighteen dollars for an F one fifty. So that, that's a big difference. Yeah, and obviously, you know, the Ford F-150 driver is not necessarily going to uh, look at that trade-off. There's probably other reasons they might be driving that truck, but the Civic is a prime example. So if you're looking at buying a new Honda Civic or, um, you know, a Hyundai Kona or a Hyundai Ioniq, which is a slightly less smaller range, or Nissan Leaf, um, yeah, that's $10 uh, every 100 kilometers or or 10 cents per kilometer. And the typical driver in Canada drives around 15,000 kilometers a year, so... Um, you know, $1,500 a year that you're going to save by switching over. And that doesn't even take into account uh, maintenance cost savings. So there's virtually no maintenance once you have an electric vehicle. There's uh, no oil changes <laughs> to speak of. Uh, brake pads last longer because of regenerative braking. Uh, so you really, you're saving a fair bit on maintenance as well. So the payback period is quite short, even without uh, rebates in British Columbia. Okay, so what about here in Alberta? I mean, there's some differences in Alberta. I mean, the, the rebates are uh, different here. The, uh, the electricity is different here. I mean, even the climate, it's colder here. That, that can have some issues for the efficiency or the effectiveness of electric yep. vehicles and their batteries. So what's the dynamic in Alberta as you see it? Yeah, so the payback's not as great, and and if you if you are you know if if you're environmentally motivated uh, on the decision, it's also not quite as great. Um, you know, you know still some benefits, but uh, um, you know until we do switch off of coal, you're you're you are powering your car with with coal power largely. 
Um, but in terms of cost, yeah, the dollar twenty gas, or I think it's fifteen today, something like that. Um, the savings are are much less. Power prices are similar, actually. Interestingly, we we tend to think BC is so much cheaper, but um, on the variable rates, which is what would matter for filling this up. Interestingly, BC doesn't have very big fixed charges for electricity. They lump almost everything into a variable rate. So there, you'd be paying 14 cents a kilowatt hour. Here in Alberta, the energy price is around 6 cents. Uh, there's some variable charges in your TMB, adds on about 4. So we pay about 10 cents. Variably. So our power yeah. is actually cheaper um, for um, using more. So powering powering your car is actually going to be cheaper here in um Alberta, but you're just not getting the same level of gas savings. And as you point out, there's no provincial uh, subsidies. We're not doing that. So it's just the $5,000 savings. So I think I, I did some quick math on a Civic versus an Ionic, and it came out to about, an I think, an eight-year payback with that $5,000 savings. So that, that's how long it takes to, to recoup the additional cost of an EV in terms of saving money on fuel when you're paying a buck twenty. Uh, for that gas. So, um, you know, that's marginally economic. It's it's, uh, it's kind of a toss-up at that point. Well, and I guess in terms of, of watching trends and, and understanding the implication of policy, I mean, BC is going to be an interesting case study to watch to see where, you know, the electric vehicle share is at in, in five or ten years. Absolutely. I, I think, um, you know, it, I'm going to be fascinated to see what this type of thing does, which is it, it's it's really sort of tipping the scales towards EVs. So now it'll be a question of can the supply keep up? Uh, will infrastructure be there? Will infrastructure respond and make it easier? One of the aspects of buying an EV isn't just the cost differential. It's a sort of uncertainty. It's a new technology. So uh, not many people have EVs. Certainly, you know, here in Alberta, I don't, I don't have very many friends or colleagues that have them, so I, I have things like range anxiety or uncertainty about how I'm going to be able to charge or how it's going to hold up in our cold winters. I can read about it, but there's something uh, more tangible about asking uh, someone down the street who has one and actually sees it performs and you see a real bill and see those gas savings. So getting more people into EVs through these subsidies, whether they're you know cost-effective or justified or not, it will have that one benefit of a kind of a cohort effect putting more people into them uh, will be able to you know get a better sense about uh, overcoming some of these uncertainties or anxieties we might have about driving them that's interesting all right much more to policyschool.ca blake thanks so much for joining us here appreciate it cheers thanks guys. take care all right blake schaefer uh research fellow of the school of public policy of the university of calgary so some interesting calculations that he's done uh does this make an electric vehicle any more appealing I mean, I think to some there's there's just kind of a I don't know what you would call it. It's not it's not a cultural barrier. It's not a political barrier. But they're they're just they're they're differences. I think in how people perceive electric vehicles or the kind of people that drive electric vehicles, or we somehow see it as as an attack on Alberta or our economy or our way of life in some way. And and yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe it is at some level. I think ultimately what it should matter to to the individual is what works best for me. Right. What kind of vehicle do I need? What's it going to cost me to buy it? What's it going to cost me to, to drive it every day? Right. And so what is better for my needs and for my bottom line? Ultimately, that, that should be the decision. In terms of the type of vehicle, a, you know, a car, a crossover, a truck, or in this, in this case, gasoline versus hybrid versus electric. Well, the so-called Idaho stop is uh, moving forward uh, here in uh, the city of Calgary. The city committee has uh, decided to move the idea forward. There's still going to be some more debate, but it's a step forward uh, for this approach that, that changes the way that, that cyclists basically interact with stop signs. If you're driving a vehicle, you know how it works. You see a, a stop sign, you come to a complete stop. But what's become known as the Idaho stop means that for cyclists, a stop sign would be treated basically like a yield sign. Now, there's been some interesting research on this, and so I do want to find out a bit more about what the the benefits of this are, at least what the pros are. Uh, There were were some at City Hall in the debate this week that kind of bristled at the idea that why do cyclists get to, to treat stop signs differently? Why do we have a different set of rules when it comes to stop signs? It applies to vehicles and it applies to cyclists. 
But there's some, some good reasons for that. So I wanted to find out a bit more about it. Somebody uh, who's uh, done some research, I did a study a couple of years ago, uh, that finds some safety benefits as a result of this is uh, Joseph uh, Schweiderman. He's uh, director of the Chaddock Institute for Metropolitan Development at DePaul mm-hmm. University in Chicago. Joseph, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Good to be here. Uh, so the Idaho stop, I mean, where did it get that, that title, first of all? It was adopted in the state of Idaho, which was an early uh, uh, adopter of this, and uh, it percolated a while, and some cities in Colorado uh, gave it a shot, and now the idea is spreading around uh, the U.S. and, and Canada. All right, so is, I mean, I, I, did I sum it up well enough? I mean, is there anything else to it? Basically, a stop sign becomes a yield sign for cyclists? Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, a stop light becomes a stop sign. And um, most of the places that have adopted so far are not heavily urbanized, but now we're seeing interest in, in bigger cities, uh, you know, Calgary being one of them. And I think there's two things that we, we find compelling about it. First, it allows bicyclists to be more aggressive in managing their own safety, particularly if you're at a stop light with a truck next to you. Uh, to your left, we're finding out some traffic accidents occur when the bicyclist patiently waits for the light to turn and a truck turns right on red and the back tire, uh, you know, uh, caused a fatality by, by hitting the, uh, the bicyclist and by getting out of harm's way at an intersection as quickly as you can can be a good thing. Uh, the other thing is police are really reluctant to enforce bicycle laws. And they almost never ticket people for running red lights or running stop signs. And by having a more set of realistic rules, you actually could enforce things and have fewer hard feelings because the rules would seem to be reasonable rather than just uh, suggestions, as you might say right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me because it might seem counterintuitive on the surface that for a cyclist to be more aggressive at an intersection actually makes it safer for them. But that, that's what the evidence shows us here. That is. In fact, you look at people on busy streets, and when they're stopped at a stoplight, uh, they're nervous because traffic is whipping by them. People are doing rights on red, and and you know it's not a good place to be. And uh, often they will uh, they will dart across just you know because there's something senses this isn't a good place to to be sitting. And uh, we find that uh, this, this maybe sounds a little odd, but females have been most heavily hit by trucks going right on red and being run over. And we found they're more likely to not implicitly just do the Idaho stop, you know, break the law if it's not legal, but uh, they're more likely to stand at an intersection, the research shows, and so the fatalities have been greater. Um, and then just you talk to seasoned cyclists, even ones that are really conscious of safety, particularly at four-way stops. I mean, they hit the brakes, they slow down, they look, and they go. But it's very rare we find. We observe bicyclists for hours and hours. We found at four-way stops, only about 5% of bicyclists actually do stop. Well, and, I mean, should they be faulted for that, right? I mean, I guess if, if the argument is that they should and they're not, are we kind of rewarding unsafe behavior might be the question. Yeah, I mean, that's the counter-argument, and I can't uh, have evidence to disprove that, that if you loosen up the laws, like if you raise the speed limit, people will just go faster because they know uh, they have, you know, more latitude than before. So if you say you don't actually have to stop, will people show even less safety at a, at a stop sign? rather than simply yielding. My argument is that we've looked around the country and it's really a bitter situation if you ticket somebody today for going through a, a blowing through a, a four-way stop without stopping because nobody does. But if you set the rules that they actually can follow, you know, it's a much more amicable, uh, they understand a little more. And some cities are going away from ticketing people to make them take online traffic safety classes. So if you create laws that bicyclists can follow and then have a softer way to enforce it, you know, the IDO stop can create that environment uh, more than we have today. It's interesting. Is it, is it, does it make cycling more convenient? Is it also a way of, of encouraging people to, to, to bicycle? <laughs> Well, that's a really good point. In fact, you know, it's not just a matter of I'm lazy, I don't want to stop, but when you're on bicycling, you're always managing your momentum. Mm-hmm. And every time you stop, you know, you got to start up again, and you lose that momentum in a car, you don't think about it quite so much. And so it is, uh, 
uh, it is a burden to stop in terms of the exertion required. And, uh, you know, cities are trying to encourage bike behavior. And what's hard about this issue, we find, is there's a lot of animosity on both sides, that motorists yeah. are often uh, real edgy about bicyclists not showing good safety. And bicyclists are, of course, angered at motorists that don't give them, uh, you know, respect on the road. So, when you pass this, you often get a lot. We got a lot of hate mail for our study, for example, by exactly. people saying you don't see these bicycles out there. They're not, you know, reserving laws, and the last thing you want to do is give them more, more freedom, and uh, and so that makes this argument pretty turbulent when it comes up at city hall. Well, when it comes to implementing this, I mean, does does it have a noticeable effect on drivers? Is there a real need to make sure everyone's aware that this this change has occurred, that the Idaho stop now exists? Yeah, that's a interesting thing that we think the act of passing the Idaho stop generates lots of buzz. It sort of wipes uh, the slate clean and tells bicyclists we have a new set of rules, and that'll spread pretty quick. And you'll have sort of a publicity effect that that city hall will know that uh, you know the bicyclists are aware that we're doing something for them, but we're going to have a set of laws that we now can meaningfully enforce. And we think if you do that all at one time, that can be a pretty good thing. Um, what, the, what there isn't much research about, and we're real honest about this in our study, is in really busy, dense downtown districts, do you want to allow the Idaho stop? Like here in Chicago, you know, we have streets yeah. that have, you know, buses every 20 seconds and and uh, a million pedestrians and everything else. And nobody is adopted in that kind of circumstance. Calgary, uh, of course, has you know pretty nicely populated downtown. So that's maybe where some of the arguments going to occurring, but my guess is there's relatively few bicyclists uh, in downtown Calgary, um, you know, compared to maybe some of the more recreational areas. So it it may not uh, may not be a big sticking point. Well, it'd be interesting to see how it how it works here. It looks like we're going down that path. Just appreciate your input on this. Thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Good talking. All right. Likewise. Take care. Uh, that is Joseph uh, Schweiderman. He's uh, director of the Chattuck Institute for Metropolitan Development at DePaul University in Chicago. Uh, the author of this study back in 2016 that, that looked at the impact of the Idaho stop and finds that, in fact, it may be safer for cyclists to, to give them this flexibility, if you want to call it. Are we creating a, a double standard here? Or are we basically saying that cyclists aren't stopping at stop signs, so we'll just throw up our hands and, and say it's okay to do so. A lot of different opinions on this, uh, and it's not just here in Calgary where there are strong opinions on this. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge, and you can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.